Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly. I too am a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and Yulia Zorza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Francis Dernley, the assistant comment editor at The Telegraph and a co-host of Ukraine The Latest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you. Francis, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show when if we were to look at the Venn diagrams of our respective listenerships, I think it is safe to say that although not all of your listeners listen to the Eastern Front, pretty much all of the Eastern Front's followers are also addicted as I am to Ukraine the latest and are great admirers of the fantastic fantastic work that you and your colleagues are doing. Maybe to kick this off, you could give us a little bit of history of the podcast when you made that commitment and when was it that you saw clearly that this was going to be a sort of daily product that you were sticking with for you know the foreseeable future, no, no matter what. And how do you explain, I mean, the, the tremendous success that the podcast really has seen over its existence? Yes, well, thank you very much for having me on. A huge honor. And we've been obviously liaising for, for many months now. So it's great to, to speak to you all in, in person. I mean, there was never an expert expectation. There was never a great plan. And I think the first thing to, to get across is that we were just as shocked as anybody when the invasion began. We'd obviously been reporting as a newspaper on the build-up, but when it actually happened, it wasn't as if we were ready to go and launch a podcast. It really was very, very spontaneous. And it wasn't even a podcast. It was a Twitter space, which it still is, which goes out at 1pm London time every weekday. And it was really to try and analyse the shocking events that we were seeing unfolding in real time. And we did that for the first day and the second and the third. And we saw that there was a sizable audience that were coming back. And we felt that given the gravity of the event, that it would make sense for us to turn those audio recordings we were doing live into a podcast that was a little bit more edited. This was long before we had interview segments or anything like that, that we would release, you know, half an hour, 45 minute reflections that were just done live, very much unedited and were just put out. And I don't think at any point we thought, oh, well, this is definitely going to be every weekday of the war. I think it was just that that was how it naturally needed to be. It was required given how much and how quickly things were changing, particularly in those early days of the war. I mean, in many ways I've been reflecting on this recently about what turning points of the war there have been I would say that there were at least two or three in the first three weeks to a month and there are now I'd say there have been other turning points that have happened later but they might have six month gaps between them so inevitably when you're living history that quick you have to cover it daily and so it was never that we thought right well we're going to be doing this for the next 19 months it was very much like well let's wait for and see how things unfold and it just kept unfolding and in such an extraordinary fashion and in a way that we felt was very, very much important to record, particularly when we started hearing accounts of terrible war crimes. I'm very proud that on the podcast, we were one of the first outlets, really, including The Telegraph, more broadly, to really do some deep dive investigations into that, and particularly the issue of children, and to continue to, to log that and to invest the time and resources, which of course take an enormous amount to keep doing it every day and to be committed to doing it. But it was never planned. And 
even today, I think people would be very surprised as to how many of the people who were involved in it at the very beginning are still the core team. I think people are shocked when they learn that when people email the inbox, you know, it's me, Dom, David, and a couple of others that see it. They assume we have a sort of staff of 20 that are working away in the background. It really isn't that. It's a very small team. And of course, we're relying on the research that the paper brings in, and of course, our other journalists and everything else and our own work. But this is something that is on top of our usual jobs. But as you say, it has grown enormously, um, for which we're you know humbled by. And it's now, I think, on about 60 million downloads and is really the most, I think, trusted source in, in audio form on both sides of the Atlantic, certainly in English, covering the war. But it's been quite a journey. But at no point have we really had any grand strategy meeting. It has just evolved very, very naturally from within and from without, as listeners have told us what they want us to cover. To take advantage of a unique perspective that you must have from the persistent attention to the issue, First of all, I'd be interested to hear what your top three you know, turning points were, so to speak. But even before we get to that, it was your mention of the atrocities that sparked this in me. I just think that's one of the stories that has not received the public attention that it, certainly, I don't know if it's true in Britain, but uh, in the United States. And the contrast between the Hamas atrocities and the Russian atrocities, I mean, so certainly cumulatively, the Russian atrocities are far greater and equally as horrible. But I'd be interested in, uh, since you've tracked this so persistently for so long, what your, what your take on that is. I completely agree with you. I think that's one of the things that shocked me the most about covering this war is the apparent lack of cut through on that issue relative to the military and strategy. And I can totally understand it. Don't get me wrong. You know, I'm a first and foremost, I'm a journalist. I understand what stories people will read and engage with and what they won't. But I think it has been very noticeable seeing that people have not been as morally outraged persistently, particularly in politicians, in a manner that has meant a real public awareness of the scale of the tragedy. I mean, only today I was reporting about another 300 children taken from Zaporizhia. I mean, it's the first instance, really, where I've seen how in the Second World War, and I I hesitate to use this example, really, because I think the Holocaust was a particular sort of horror, but how it was possible for the Holocaust to be being carried out in the Second World War with relatively little public attention aware of it, despite there being numerous evidence of what was taking place. I've pondered why that is, and I think that there are various different psychological factors in play. I think on the first hand, there is an element of it is so shocking that people have a mental block to it. And I think part of that is that if you acknowledge the truth, you then feel that you are morally obliged to do something about it. And given the complexity of this issue, a lot of people are not necessarily comfortable making that next step. But I also think as well, there is something about a denial too about it. I mean, using the Holocaust example again, it's a fantastic Claude Landsman documentary called The Carla Report, which is about the, an interview with the author of The Carla Report in the Second World War, which investigated some of the very early Holocaust crimes against the Jews committed by the Nazis. And he says that, that there is in a sense, a men- that people can only operate in a, a mental world that, that every one of us is born into a certain universe and there are certain things that just we will not be 
willing to accept beyond those confines. And it was impossible, he argued in 1941, for the majority of people to believe that what was happening was happening. And I think to a lesser degree, we are seeing similar with regard to what is taking place in Ukraine, because I think people are, you know, if I look at my generation, I'm 31, people were told growing up that history was over, in a sense. I remember teachers talking about that we were entering a new liberal age. It was very much the Fukuyama interpretation of history was instilled in us. And so now, you know, when you see bodies being bundled into pits of people dressed in the same clothes that we're wearing today, there is, I think, a mental block amongst a lot of people that that is so different, so jarring from the world that we were brought up to believe in, that people in some way large numbers of people cannot engage with it. But all of that said, all of that said, I've been very, very struck that our listeners on the podcast, people who do care very deeply about this war, are deeply appreciative of the work and the coverage that we've given to that issue. And of course, it really depends on journalists who are actually, you know, on the ground, Ukrainian journalists doing a deep investigative work. So we're not taking credit for that. So I don't want to give the impression that nobody is engaged with it. But I think if we're talking about in the majority, I think it has not got that cut through. And perhaps if newspapers were more willing to publish images of the kind of photography that we have seen that that would not be the case. So I think that unfortunately, the inevitable aspect of censorship that that is part and parcel of covering a war out of decency and for legal reasons is also an impediment to that. But sorry, a a rather rambling reflection, but it's a big issue. No, of course it is. And and thanks for addressing that. And and I want to go back to, to the podcast for a second and put that in the larger British context. You with the Ukraine podcast are doing the function of focusing the people on this war from the very beginning. But there's more to it. Um, And basically, there's the question of why has the UK been so supportive in showing so much leadership to on this? Now, a part of our audience is going to roll our eyes at this and say, that's just the Brits. But why are the Brits (laughs) like that? How much was their history involved with a certain interpretation of World War II? in comparison to continental powers in Europe? And how much is there something else, a particular link to Ukraine, a particular commitment to European security, transatlantic security? Help us make sense of why Brits are the way they are. If I can just jump in on that, there's something really striking about the degree of hatred that Russian propagandists have reserved for the UK in particular, even in comparison in comparison to, to the US and other countries that have supported Ukraine throughout this war. And in spite of the fact that a lot of Russian money has been parked very safely in, you know, London and Surrey real estate. Okay, now here's my pile on <laughs> since we're all jumping in. I, I read a piece, I can't remember quite where, I think maybe it was like unheard or one of those, you know, sort of cranky right-wing publications for self-styled iconoclasts, uh, younger ones, saying the lead was sort of noting the passing and the honoring of the no it was a michael kane uh, world war ii movie that just came out again sort of observing the passing of the last world war ii veterans and just whining in a rather unpleasant way about the sort of ritualistic churchill channeling that has 
I would just say as an American for the British to lose that, even if it is a, you know, culturally induced <laughs> phenomenon, it's something that we rely upon. So I wonder whether Boris Johnson was originally doing his Churchill imitation and whether there is a reaction or how deep the reaction is. This just snarky, you know, people whom you probably know personally, Francis. But, uh, you know, again, the sort of we've had enough of this on the beaches, Dick, from younger British intellectuals. It's very interesting. I mean, I think to start off, I don't think we can downplay the role of the individual in this. I do think that Boris Johnson and Ben Wallace did go out on a limb. There wasn't a sort of cultural determinism in play that meant that Britain was always going to play this predominantly important role in the war. If Jeremy Corbyn had been prime minister, I think there would have been much, much more hesitancy. I think it's important to him to say that as a caveat to what I am about to say. That's a pretty risky bet there. <laughs> you know, Boris Johnson and for whatever motivation. Boris Johnson has. He is uh, somebody who is a huge admirer of Churchill. He wrote Bix books on him. And I think that he did see at that moment that this was a were game changer, a historical turning point, and that something had to be done and wanted to, to lead from the front in that. But I think Ben Wallace, as I say too, the British Defence Secretary, was also very, very important in that. And I think it, it's regrettable if his role in this is downplayed because of Boris's golden locks, as it were. All of that said, talking about the British historical cultural role and why it has this perspective that is willing to be perhaps a little bit bolder and braver than other European countries. I suppose answering as a historian, I would say because it can afford to, right? I mean, historically, Britain has a pretty unique position, which is it is an island, it is separate, it is of Europe, but not of Europe at the same time. And we haven't been conquered for a thousand years. So Britain naturally, I think, has an inclination toward boldness that other countries perhaps feel more hesitancy to. But I mean, in the fundamentals, there is a, a sense here for right or wrong that, that Britain has, on defence matters, been pretty secure, apart from various attempts uh, in which to seize us, whether it be from Napoleon to Hitler, whoever, you know, various attempts that, that Britain has always succeeded in that resistance. And so naturally, I think we have, if boldness is the way of articulating it, then it is to some extent culturally ingrained. But as I say, we shouldn't then, we shouldn't take the sort of Tolstoyan view there that there is no such thing as the role of the individual in this. I think it just so happens that you had the merging of the two where you have a cultural environment that is inclined towards boldness and then two individuals who also were, for whether psychological reasons, personality, also willing to take the risk. But it was absolutely essential. And you asked for my reflections on the turning points. One of them certainly would be that British support. The decisions very, very early on to send the weaponry that we did was absolutely vital. But I think too much focus and onus will be given on the weapons, actually. I think that the more important element was the political. The political internally in Ukraine, the support that was given to Zelensky privately by Boris Johnson. And we have anecdotal stories of Boris Johnson going around a church with Zelensky and pointing out various images on the walls and talking about the history. And Zelensky in the story, you know, said you could see his back stiffen. You know, this was a man who suddenly realised they weren't alone, that they had an ally. And that internally in Ukraine, I think, was absolutely invaluable. And the Ukrainians will tell you that, high up Ukrainians. This is not me imposing my interpretation upon them. That's coming from very much from them. But I think the bigger role of Britain was that political push. It forced Europe to confront the issue very, very early on in a way that I think if Britain had still been part of the European Union, we would have been stuck in the backdoor corridor 
outdoors for longer in order to put forward this united front. And I think that, of course, there are many strengths of the united front, but creating a united front is never a very speedy process. And I think what Britain did is that by virtue of being somewhat outside of the uh, European family post-Brexit, or at least the structures, meant that Britain could afford to go it alone. And it forced very, very serious conversations, in part because of just the very nature of doing it, but also the theatricality involved. Boris Johnson, for right or wrong, is uh, he draws attention. You can't miss him. And I think that that forced European leaders to respond. And it shamed them, frankly, in certain instances, too. So I think that the role of Britain is very important in all of this. But it's the role of both the individual and a cultural propensity deeper down, I think, which sometimes rears its head. And it just so happened that, that Cleo reared its head this time. So I don't want to relitigate Brexit by any stretch of the imagination. But, but I, I think one feature of the European response has been, notwithstanding the fact that the EU operates as EU27 and tries to maintain a unified front is that most countries have actually gone it alone. And Poland did not ask for anybody's permission to transfer its weapon systems, uh, did not try to reach a consensus on the matter with Austria or, or Hungary. And, and, and so it has been a sort of decentralized rambling response. So I don't think the UK would have necessarily been held back by its membership. But that's, that's sort of a minor point. I was, I was hoping to ask you, since you have been talking very eloquently about this for, for a long time, and now you've spent several weeks in the in the US following the discussion about the blooming you know, isolationist tendencies in, in some segments of the Republican Party. What would be your response to the argument, which is very often advanced by realist or isolationist types who say that in a world of scarce resources, countries need to set priorities and therefore they should perhaps disengage from one part of the world in order to do more in other parts of the world in the US setting that's used in the context of, of the Indo-Pacific and, and geopolitical competition with China, from which supposedly Ukraine serves as a distraction. I imagine there must be a version of this sentiment in the UK as well, which is faced with actual fiscal pressures that, that prevent it from building up its military and, and its navy and its defense force to a, to a shape that would enable it to, to play a more global role. But But what would be your answer to people who say, we can't be everywhere, we can't be the world's policemen, and we have to pick and choose? Uh, well, just that point on Britain and whether there is a strain of isolationism here. Of course, there is amongst certain elements, whether it be on the further right and the further left, for various different traditions. But broadly speaking, we were talking about British culture there. We are not predisposed towards isolationism in a way that I think is more culturally ingrained in certain traditions within the United States. I mean, it goes back to Adams and Jefferson. They're debating on the very issue of in or out, as it were. And so I think, you know, that's something unique about the United States, which is part of the reason why I find it so fascinating, is that a lot of the tensions that are present from the founding fathers still exist today. But to answer that question about what I would say to them is very simply, unpunished evil grows. I I mean, we've seen that. That's one of the golden lessons of history, not just in the 20th century, but going back many, many centuries, that if you are trying to 
maintain a certain way of things being done, whether it be an international order or a balance of power. I mean, this has always been articulated in slightly different ways. Then it is absolutely vital that when there are deviations from that norm that you think are dangerous, that it is stamped out quickly. It's like a fire. It spreads. And I think Ukraine has to be seen, if it has to be seen in this sort of rather cold, calculating geopolitical way, it has to be seen as the first real great challenge post Fukuyama of the international rules order that we've been living with for many years. And in that sense alone, it is very much vital that the West shows that Putin is not allowed to gain at all from a hostile invasion carried out in the way that it has been, because that will be a green light to many other powers of A, of Western weakness, which will enable their own activity, and B, creates a slightly different moral universe than the one that we have grown up in, where it becomes slightly more permissible to carry out war crimes, slightly more permissible to invade countries if you think you might gain a few territorial gains. I mean, I still think they'd be very, very modest from the Russian perspective, given the sacrifice. But nonetheless, they would gain something, potentially, some would argue, if they got what they want, which would be peace tomorrow. So I would say to them, it has to be seen in that context, although I would argue, too, that it's vital we see this in a moral context as well, that not in this. I mean, it's very striking, I think, if you, you hear the remarks of Vivek Rumaswamy when he talks about these matters, and he's one of those I think you're alluding to with, with the remarks of, of thinking about China being the great threat and not being able able to, to go and think about Ukraine is they talk about it in such a cold way. You know, we are talking here about something that is so morally egregious, really, um, for the reasons we were describing earlier, that there is a moral motivation, I would argue, just as much as there is a geopolitical power dynamics one. Um, so I think there's that argument. And I would say that also, if you're just trying to connect it in a, in a sort of more short termist sense, China will stand to benefit more, I would argue, from a strong Russia than from a weakened one. And so it should be in everybody's interest for Russia to be defeated in Ukraine in the West, because if it is not, then I think it will strengthen Russia's relationship with China, because they'll be seen as a useful ally on the Western sphere, hemisphere. But not only that, it will make China think, well, actually, the West talks tough. But probably if we invade Taiwan or we do this, that and the other, they might put some sanctions on us. They might do this. But ultimately, give it a few years, give it a few months. And the commitment isn't really resolute. And I think that's a very, very dangerous message to send in an age of great instability, which I think is predestined given all of the trends that we can see. I think we're living, going to live through one of the most tumultuous centuries for a very, very long time. Let me then ask an additional or add an additional complication to the mix that you're seeing in the Telegraph as we are seeing across the world in the media space, that for the first time, Ukraine is not on the front pages anymore. And we see this fatigue as you do in, in London in a complicated manner, in a complex manner in which we have, of course, Israel, Hamas, and of course, there's China, and of course, there's limited resources. You must have seen the discussion that we've had over the last few days here in Washington, where there was even a question, which then the answer to from Joe Biden was posted all across Central and Eastern Europe, across the Eastern Front. Can we actually in Washington do both? 
not conduct two wars, but just support two operations. And yes, Joe Biden very well said, yes, of course, if not us, then who else? Very American response. But but the reality is that the resources are stretched and that's becoming more of an argument, including on the Hill. And we see it, of course, in the media too. And we have the same kind of rationale for fatigue, if you'd like, in continental Europe. So you as someone focusing in part of your work on Ukraine, but then having to do other things too. How do you formulate that argument of how we can and should stay focused on Ukraine? Well, I think it all comes down to whether you see this as being two separate wars or one war. And I think that's an open question. I'm not trying to posit an argument when I say that. But if you look at what President Zelensky is trying to do, and of course, he has his own motivations for doing so. But I think actually, one can say that Zelensky's been saying this for much longer than what's erupted in the Middle East, that we are entering a new geopolitical phase now. And he's arguing that there are certain powers who are pushing the envelope and are interconnected in ways that they were not many decades ago and are working together to undermine the Western rules-based order. And I think if we see the events unfolding in the Middle East as a development of to some degree, Iran and Russia's relationship of China's involvement in that. If it's seen in those terms, then it's, I think, a different way of thinking about that fundamental question. Rather than this being a, a tapestry of fragmenting conflicts, fragmenting world order, it's all connected in some way. And I think that that will be one of the open questions. It's something I'm sort of pondering a lot on the podcast at the moment is the degree of connection. I think certainly there are connections between, you know, the relationship between Iran, Hamas, obviously very, very well established, undeniable. But then there's Russia supporting of Iran and the fact that would Iran be as emboldened in its relationships with Hamas if it didn't know it had Russian backing? Would also the technology that was used by Hamas in carrying out the attack on Israel have been prevalent were it not for the war in Ukraine? drone warfare particularly if the war had been stopped earlier would that weaponry have been used would the order have been different etc so i think there are a lot of we don't know right but in a sense that's not new i mean you can either see the 20th century post the second world war as being a scattering of different conflicts vietnam korea or you see it all under the umbrella of the cold war and I think what remains to be seen is, is this Cold War too? You know, we are definitely in it and we just are not quite willing to acknowledge that fact yet. Or is this still a degree of, of separate things that are causing a fragmentation? So I think it all will depend on how this is perceived in America and in the West more broadly. I'm not optimistic, I have to say, in the short term about the degree of perceived connection between the events, because I think it is very complicated. But I think at, at one point or another, when the chips are down, if things do escalate much further, people are going to have to really ponder whether you can actually defeat Iran without also defeating Russia, whether you can undermine China without defeat, you know, the, the degree of connection is much more profound than people are willing to acknowledge. But as I say, I think it's an open question at the moment, but clearly there are some, not least Zelensky, who are trying to articulate this as being something much bigger than two separate wars. 
Yes, thank you. I'm writing a book about this, so Zelensky is at the forefront, but you're helping me make the arguments too. Yulia, nobody is more deeply into strategic culture and particularly Anglo-American strategic culture than I am. So it's going to be pistols at, at 10 paces or something like that. And thus I have a statement to make about the culture. It is remarkably consistent and persistent, and I would mark this from the beginning of the modern era. Having a truly global perspective on international politics, there are not many nations who achieve that or, or naturally view the world that way. And outside the United States and Great Britain, I'm not sure there really have ever been any. Everyone else is a continental power of some sort. So there is this systemic structural element that pulls us toward engagement in what would otherwise seem to be separate and disconnected theaters of operation. But there's also a moral, ideological, politically principled element as well, uh, a belief that individuals cannot prosper except under pluralistic political systems, and that we need to create a world that, say, for A, Protestantism, B, individual liberty, C, democracy, you know, it's the expression of it has evolved as cultures and societies have evolved. But the consistency is, to me, quite marked. And to write that off is the declinists have a lot of work to do, as do the realists. Realists have a hard time just simply explaining Anglo-American behavior. Maybe Roman empires would hack off heads of chieftains in Baghdad or someplace like that. But to see democracies and, and representative governments as sort of the natural stable order of human politics, you know, there are very few people who, who have taken that view. And it's just been it's just been remarkably successful. We have these sort of cycles where we get tired and exhausted, but then come back from them. I mean, that has been the pattern for centuries. And I think the burden of proof is on those who say that we shouldn't do it and that we cannot do it. So end of my sermon. It's a sermon I like giving very much. So I do have one reaction on that. I think it's very interesting talking on this question about you know, world views of various different powers. I mean, I do agree that probably America and Britain do share a more global outlook than many countries. I mean, even China, even though it sees itself or wants to see itself as a, as a world power, in many ways, its, its perspective is very still internal focused. It is not like the Soviet Union trying to proliferate an ideology globally. It is still very much rooted in its sort of nationalist identity and keeping that entity together as opposed to one that is sort of cross borders. I think the additional thought I would have to all of this is, I think one of the most striking elements of the war in Ukraine is many people, I think, myself included to a degree, thought that one could look at the events unfolding with a sense of objective detachment, whether using the rules of history, the rules of geostrategy, whatever, and that anybody in the West probably could look at the same amount of evidence and reach the same conclusions about what needed to be done. So that you could look at the Russian incursion and you could expect, broadly speaking, that the rules of history would suggest to everybody that you can't allow this to happen, that the support would need to be ramped up, that weapons would need to go, that, that defence budgets would need to increase. And yet actually what's happened, going back to our original subject of conversation, is that every country has seen it very, very strongly through its own national prism. And so 
you know, academia, intellectualism, whatever you want to define it, seeks this sort of objective perspective that you can insert X and all of these different elements and you'll get a Y result. But actually, France's perspective on this war, Germany's perspective on the war, Britain's perspective on the war, Poland's perspective on the war, entirely different. Same evidence, but entirely different conclusions from that. And I think it just shows the fact that we like to see ourselves in this rational universe. But the reality is that fundamentally politics is a game of emotion and is about cultural elements that are very, very easy to dismiss and are too readily dismissed. But I think we've seen the primacy of them returned by this war. On that note, you earlier made this very important observation that in order to sustain a rules-based order internationally, there is a need to respond to norm violations quickly, ruthlessly to deter the further spreading. Otherwise, entropy sets in, jungle grows back, whatever the metaphor. But I would argue that something similar is true of domestic politics. And one of the causes for concern, including about the US strategic culture, has to do with what we could call you know, erosion of norms, erosion of institutions in domestic politics, most visibly in US Congress, where many legislators are not there to write legislation or to legislate, but to serve as sort of would-be commentators on current events and facing very different set of incentives than what the framers and, and those associated with the body uh, long have in mind. And, you know, Giselle could sort of bring in her depth of expertise from working in, in the Senate. But that, to me, serves as a possible constraint on the actual ability of a country like the United States to respond effectively to, to global crises. And paradoxically, the, the situation in the Middle East might make it easier to pass an aid package for Ukraine by bundling those two issues. But the overall picture is one in which the United States can't pass a budget, can't make longer term financial commitments where every 45 days we are going to vote on a continuing resolution just to keep the government operating. And this is no way to run a proper country, much less a global superpower. How worried are you about this getting worse before it gets any better? Well, since we've been talking about all of this in a civilizational sense, I'm immediately inclined to think of Edward Gibbon's analysis of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And he has a wonderful quote in it, which I think is underrated, where he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's something like the central question of Roman history is not why and when it fell, but it's why it persisted for so long. And I think the answer that he concludes is that it's due to the fact that there was certain beliefs that were fundamental regardless of whichever side you were on within Rome. But if you look at the, and he was obviously looking at the empire, but if you look at the Republic, what happens is that really the Republic's dead for two centuries in terms of anybody could have overthrown it for about two centuries. But what changed was that people were suddenly willing to question. You know, what I mean is they had the power to do so. You know, Pompey had the power to do so. Sulla had the power to do so. But they still believed enough in the principles of the foundations of that society, not to overthrow it until you get Julius Caesar, until you get Augustus, who are willing to actually question the fundamentals of that society so much that it it's all gone. And I think this is the danger, particularly when you have a society like the United States that is built on foundations that are doc documents and certain principles, is that once you erode trust in them completely, 
what is America? <laughs> you know, and it's the that's the sort of thing that worries me somewhat. And I'm not saying, by the way, that we're on the precipice yet. I think there's there's a lot of road left to run in that argument. I mean, I've just been talking about this over the course of centuries, and maybe we need to be doing the same in the American context. But that's what makes me sort of ponder this question, is that we like to think, I think, that when a society fails, it comes from outside, or a revolution from within. But actually, more normally, a society just changes with a whimper, and it gets to the point where nobody even really ponders that something's been lost that it's already eroded to such a point that it's gone and the people themselves can't quite realise and recognise that the damage has been done. And so I do worry in the American context that with this constant undermining of certain norms and many of the principles that made America great are being eroded, to use your term. And it's been quite striking for me. I've been listening to a lot of presidential speeches recently from the post-Cold War era and, and during the Cold War. And what's quite striking is the decline of certain principles, I suppose, across party, the bipartisanship, the oratorical ability of presidents, the sense of community in dire, dire straits. I mean, the instinct of many Americans now, I fear, would be that in times of crisis to immediately blame the other side for the reasons for that crisis, rather than rallying together and saying, well, we've got to solve this. And I, I think that that's that's potentially very worrying. So it does it does trouble me. And that's something, though, I would say that is not just a problem in the American context. It's a problem in the West more broadly. I mean, again, it's really all about confidence, confidence in the values that you have as a society or as a culture. And let's face it, in the West, there has been a very, very gradual decline in the beliefs of many of those principles, many, many motivations and reasons for that. But the beneficiaries of it have been Russia. The beneficiaries of it have been China. And I started with Gibbon, I'll end with Clark. Clark says something like, uh, in his civilization, it is confidence that makes a civilization. He says he can't define it in any other way. And I think if anyone historical were looking back on this period, they would have to say this is not an era of great confidence. And that is very troubling. I think. I propose we rename the podcast, Yes, I Think About the Roman Empire Today. I am certainly one of those men that thinks about the Romans every day. I'm, I'm happy to put my hand up and admit to that. Ancient history is my main, or was at university, my main focus. It's the one I did most of my papers in. So that is a part of the reason why it's often on my mind, as it is for anybody who studied that period extensively. But I obviously don't get to talk about it very much on the podcast because I think it would be stretching relevance. Although there have been a few times, like if you're comparing the Wagner group, for instance, the Wagner showed the dangers of having another alternative power source within a society. And that was very, very true in, in, in the Roman Empire. You have rival sources of military power, and it's usually very damaging. Obviously, for, for Gibbon, um, it is Christianity that's one of the culprits. I wonder if you could maybe turn this conversation into a diatribe against, you know, all kinds of vocary and excesses of the left undermining the trusted institutions. Well, many others have made that connection, so I don't feel there's much I can add to that. We must have Francis back in order to to make sure that we think about some sort of empire every day. I mean, I, the Roman Empire isn't even the empire I think about most. It's the British. Francis, thank you again. From me, Dalibor Rohaj. And me, Giselle Donnelly. And Nuria Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.